from Booksmart Studios. This is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and I want to take something from what we could call the headlines at this point, which is something that many people are writing me about and even in conversation talking to me about, and I think it's time for us to break it down, as they used to say. That is this new Miami English. And what I mean is that we have seen in what used to be called the newspapers that there is a way of speaking English that has emerged among people who speak Spanish, Cuban Spanish in Miami, and down the generations. So that there are people who are speaking English this way who are English dominant or maybe even don't speak Spanish. So there's this new dialect, as it's being called. It's something that interests a great many people, and it should. But then on the other hand, the truth is that from a linguistics perspective, from the perspective of linguistics, as interesting as this development is, it isn't unexpected. I want to situate this Miami dialect within what you could call the theory of language contact. The study is by Philip Carter at Florida International University, assisted by Kristen D'Alessandro Mary. And the context in terms of geography and sociology is that Miami is an extremely bilingual city. I think I've been maybe maybe one time, and I remember thinking that it is as utterly bilingual as New York City. There are times when you feel like Spanish is the dominant language, and the reason you feel that way is because it is. And so, in some neighborhoods, every second person speaks Spanish natively. In some neighborhoods, it's 90%. And so, here is somewhere where Spanish and English are up against each other, cheek by jowl. And now, there's this Miami English. Okay, what's going on there. What about that, as some people have asked me? Well, here's what that's about. To get a little more specific, what you have in this Miami English is not just people using some Spanish words. I mean, frankly, that's not interesting. Of course, they're using Spanish words because Spanish is in their lives as well, and the languages are next to each other. Where things get interesting is when it's beyond just the words, and you're getting into the way you put the words together, or expressions. And so, for example, you step down from the car in Miami English. You come down from the car. Those of us who speak English mostly think of ourselves as getting out of a car, not stepping down from it as if you know, we're a carriage or something like that. Well, as it happens in Spanish, you say bajarse del carro, to step down yourself from the car. So that's carried over into Miami English. You make a party instead of having a party or, or throwing a party. And you know, these expressions are arbitrary if you think about it, and you don't usually, but throwing a party? <laughs> what are you throwing? Well, in Miami English, you make a party. Why? Because of in Spanish, you being able to say hacer una fiesta, make a party. So it's patterned on that. You'll hear in Miami English people saying, I got married with, you know, Antonio or something like that. Well, you get married with rather than to because in Spanish, casarse con instead of casarse a. You marry with. Con is with. So those are the sorts of things that you have in Miami English, these various expressions that are only used there and that you can match to expressions in Spanish. And these expressions are used by people whose English, you know, otherwise sounds just like everybody else's, and these people may not even really speak Spanish. So the English has been transformed. And of course, there are many, many more examples than just those three. Now, 
Something that most of us, especially if you listen to this podcast, are probably aware of is something called Spanglish. And Spanglish goes under many definitions. Some people use it to refer to people switching back and forth between English and Spanish and Spanish and English and English and Spanish, the code switching. But more specifically, what needs a label, and that label is Spanglish, is that Spanish as spoken in the United States is heavily influenced by English, to the point that people who grew up speaking Spanish somewhere else often hear it as either almost a new language or, frankly, as broken or polluted. And so there are all sorts of things in this Spanglish, and it's different in different territories, but Spanish ends up being a lot more like English than it would be in, for example, Madrid. So, for example, what do you think carpeta means? Carpeta. I would think it meant rug. I would think it meant carpet. In real Spanish, it means folder, believe it or not. But you might even predict that here in the United States, where carpet means a rug, carpeta ends up being used to mean a carpet. Well, that sounds like something else to somebody who grew up speaking Spanish in the Dominican Republic. And so Spanglish or, for example, calling somebody back. Now, in real Spanish, if you want to call Spanish from other places real, when you call somebody back, you return to call them. So volver a llamar to return to call. So you call them back. But in Spanglish, and this is very common in all Spanglishes, you llamar, that's call, llamar patras. Patras is short for para atrás. And so to the back, llamar para atrás. So you call somebody backwards. Well, that's of course not what it means. What that is, is patterning on call back. So call me back. I will call this person back. I will llamar them patras. Nobody would put it that way in Madrid. Nobody would put it that way in Lima, or at least nobody who wasn't thinking about English. It happens here. Then all sorts of things like you say e shit instead of and shit and things like that. That's Spanglish. Most of us have probably heard of that. It probably doesn't surprise us that when Spanish is brought to a place where English is spoken around it for generation after generation, that the Spanish becomes more like English. So let me make a statement. And let's see how you would evaluate it. If people speak English and Spanish together for generations, I would expect their English to be unaffected by Spanish. I'll say that again. Here's a statement. If people speak English and Spanish together for generations, I would expect their English to be unaffected by Spanish. Of course, you would expect the English to be affected by Spanish. That is what we're seeing with Miami English. And so it goes both ways. The Spanish is affected, but the English is too, because languages are together in the same mouths. I'm going to give you a personal example. Here we are at the end of summer. I spend my summers, and this is going to seem strange, but I spend my summers at a Jewish bungalow colony. And so these are places that originated as where Jewish people could spend the summer, especially when they were not always welcome in other places. And so you have a bunch of cabins together, and there is entertainment provided, and it all becomes a very tight community. Many of you may be familiar with this from the movie Dirty Dancing, or fans of the marvelous Mrs. Maisel lately will remember the episodes that took place at a bungalow colony there. I happen to be at one of the very last, if not the last, of the second Jewish bungalow colonies. So as you, know, you might expect, 
almost everybody at the colony is Jewish. There are more and more non-Jewish people such as me, but it's a Jewish bungalow colony. And there are little things about the way people tend to talk that are little hints of the fact that people who went to colonies like this, and Jewish Americans in general, used to speak Yiddish. And it's rarer now, but still Yiddish has affected the English that people speak. Now, you can be quite sure that Yiddish, as spoken by generation after generation, started becoming more and more like English. There were elders complaining that the Yiddish that their grandchildren spoke was not the real thing, etc. But there's also influence on English. So, for example, at the colony, one doesn't say one is at someone's bungalow. You say you're by someone's bungalow. I'm by JJ's. I'm by Sandra's. I'm down by Harry's. Why do you say that? Well, that's a Yiddishism. That's how Yiddish uses its by word. And that has percolated into the way many Jewish people use the word, not just at the colony, but it's something that is so common at the colony that those of us who aren't Jewish say it too. I'll sometimes say, oh, she's down by Lenore's. I would never say that outside of the colony. I don't say that in Queens, but there you just kind of fall into it. The English has been affected by the Yiddish. Or, and because we're at the point where it's time for this, and this is a perfect example, yes, there is a Broadway musical that takes place at a Jewish bungalow colony, or I should say took place. It's called Wish You Were Here, 1951. It was a a minor hit and then disappeared, but it was about the kind of place that I'm talking about. And the colony has somebody who you could call a social director. In Wish You Were Here, the social director introduces himself with a song. It's always been one of my favorites. It's just damned catchy, and it's got a cute lyric. And listen to what the character, his name is Itchy. We're listening to Sidney Armas. This is Wish You Were Here, which is music by Harold Rome, 1951. Listen to the way he put something. When they broke the news to his parents, old and gray, his family and relatives all fainted dead away. When their friends revived them, they gave out with a moan. All the folks for miles around could hear them cry and groan. Oh, whoa, 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 a social director, social director. Don't tell us a boy is a social director. Let him be a loafer, let him be a bum. Anything is better than a boy he should become. A social director. So anything is better than our boy he should become, a social director. Dance, itchy, laugh, itchy. Why do you put it that way? I've always liked that because it's very accurate. Many Jewish people, especially of that time, if they spoke Yiddish, would have put it as anything would be better than our boy, he should become a social director. That's because Yiddish would put it that way. And so it'd be better if he became a teacher in Yiddish would be, this is the first time I have ever spoken a word of Yiddish or any Yiddish words strung together. I'm making up the accent. My apologies to Yiddish speakers. But if you were going to say it'd be better if he became a teacher, it would be along the lines of, (laughs) there's my Yiddish voice. So he will be a teacher. It would be better if 
He should be a teacher. It would be better if he will become a teacher, is the way you put it in Yiddish. And so that's why, as anything is better than a boy, he should become a social director. The English is affected by the Yiddish as well. That's the natural process. Or you can you can go worldwide. This is just very common. Mandarin. Mandarin is interesting in that, and this is all of the Chinese is especially as affected by Mandarin, but Mandarin because that's the one one refers to. Mandarin word order is funny because the language is basically like English. It's subject, verb, object. So the boy kicked the ball. But then quite often it's S-O-V. You put the object before and you just have to learn that that's the way it goes. Chinese is odd that way. So if you say something like I see your key. So I see your key. Subject, verb, object. I see your key. So that's key. That's the way to say I see your key. But if you want to say something like I broke the key, and it partly has to do with the fact that you said the, I broke the key. Well, broke is non what? You would think that it would be something like, well, and so yaoshu is key. Well, but no, it's not that. Instead, it's, and so I, the key, broke. I, the key, broke. Why is it suddenly different like that? The reason for this is that Mandarin originated kind of up there. And up there is where a lot of languages like Mongolian, Mongolian and its relatives, are spoken. The Mongolian-type languages are S-O-V. And many people who originally spoke those languages switched to Mandarin. But their Mandarin was affected by the way Mongolian works in that you have this S-O-V-ness in certain cases. And so I see your key. That's quote-unquote normal, S-V-O. But I broke the key. That is the Mongolian style. For those of you who are language heads, when I'm saying Mongolian, what I'm really talking about is, in general, the Altaic influence. It's not just the Mongolian language, not just Mongolian languages, but Altaic influence. But this is the way these things go. Or, for example, let's, um, let's go further north. Let's do my favorite, Russia. You're going to talk about... Something like, I have, let's make it keys. So, I have a key. Now, in Slavic languages other than Russian, having is what we would think of from English as normal. There's a, there's a verb to have. Russian and its friends, Ukrainian and Belarusian, they have this thing where you say, of me is the key. And so, umnya, of me is the key, and that's how you say I have the key. You could say, ya the key, I possess it, but that sounds as weird as it would to say that in English. And so, umnyaklyuch is I have the key. To me, the key, and with no verb to be. You know, there are all sorts of things. Whatever you have. But the thing is, you say it that way because of something. It's not just that Russian went weird all of a sudden. That is the way you would put it in languages like Finnish, which are spoken right next door. Russian got that from those languages. Many people who spoke those Finnic-type languages switched to Russian 
eons and eons and eons ago. And various things that are Finnic ended up in what is today Russian for that reason. It's inevitable. These are the things that happen. And, you know, if you want a bonus segment about more such things that happen in some other part of the world, then go to booksmartstudios.org and click on Lexicon Valley and you get the bonus material. Sometimes the bonus is like seven or eight minutes long and you get more stuff. Of course, this means that you have to give us some money, but it's just some. And that means that you get the whole experience. Now, let's get closer to English. What can happen to English? Old English is brought to England, supposedly in the 400s AD. I think all evidence is that it happened many centuries before that, but it's brought there. Good long time ago. Then, starting in 787 CE, you have Scandinavian invaders. You have Vikings who start coming first in fits and starts, and then they come and they stay. They don't speak Old English. They speak Old Norse. Old English and Old Norse were about like Spanish and Portuguese. So you could kind of work with it, but they're different languages. So they speak Old Norse. They come to stay. They learn English. Well, what's going to happen? Their English, of course, is going to be full of Norseisms. Now, partly words. So get, knife, ill, happy, Many, many very basic words, there are about seven or eight hundred of them still being used in English today, are originally Norse words. Shirt is Old English. Skirt is Old Norse, all sorts of things like that. Ditch is Old English. Dyke is Old Norse. Do you know the difference between a ditch and a dyke? I can barely come up with it. Well, that's because of it being a matter of one of the words is Old English, one of the words is Old Norse. They're variations. What is it? I guess a, a dyke is a ditch inside out. You could say that a skirt is a... You you get the point. So that is Norse and the words. Now, there was more, though, than just the words. It wasn't just things like dikes and skirts and things like that. These are Norsemen, and they speak Old Norse, and their English ends up having Norseness in it, even in how you put the words together, and that became the way everybody spoke English. And so, for example... This is what I came here for, the quote-unquote dangling preposition, which, frankly, you can't speak natural English without using. This is the level that I want to come up to, as opposed to this is the level up to which I wish to arrive. That dangling preposition, you know what that is? That's Norse. Because if you think about it, any other language you learn, you have to unlearn Things like, where do you want to go to? No other language seems to put it that way than English. The reason English does is because there are, of course, some languages that do, among the very few, Old Norse put it that way. And even today, there is a language you can go to where you don't have to unlearn dangling prepositions, and wouldn't you know, it's Danish. And so, English ended up being changed by Norse. Now, Norse I'm sure, got beaten to a pulp by English. None of this was recorded. And there were people saying, that's not how you're supposed to... Well, that's not how you're supposed to say it. But, sorry, Norse people. But English was affected as well. This is the way things actually go. And so, that brings us back to Spanglish. Of course, Spanish is going to be affected in the United States. We're talking about Cuban Spanish today and it affecting English. Well, even in Cuban Spanish, there was a story. This doesn't get often told. Let's think about Desi Arnaz playing Ricky Ricardo. 
And if you're a fan of I Love Lucy, that show is getting so old. It's at the point where it's like anthropology and you need footnotes. But if you're a fan of the show, you know that sometimes Ricky would get mad and Desi Arnaz would just start speaking in angry Cuban Spanish. And one of the things that he said, it became kind of a catchphrase, if you can catch what he's saying, is he says, Ah, mira que tiene cosa la mujer esta. So, mira que tiene cosa la mujer esta. Let's slow it down. And so, mira que tiene cosa. So, look at the thing that she has. La mujer esta. So, the woman this. La mujer esta. You know, instead of me imitating him, why don't we actually play a clip of, of him doing it? Um, Mike, thank you for this. <laughs> All right. All right. Mira que tiene cosa. So, the thing about Mira que tiene cosa la mujer esta is the la mujer esta. Because if you have learned, you know, even school kids Spanish, you know it's esta mujer, this woman. What's the la mujer esta? Now, those of you who are native Spanish speakers know that that's another way that you can put it and that la mujer esta connotes a kind of a dismissal. But why that? Where did that come from? Well, there is evidence that the reason you can say la mujer esta in, for example, Cuba, is because that's the way you would put it in terms of the order of the woman and the this in the African languages that slaves spoke. And Cuba was very much a plantation colony, frankly, a, a brutal sugar plantation colony. And the Africanness of Cuban culture is due to that. Many people speaking languages like Yoruba and Kikongo and Chui and Eve came to Cuba and they learned Spanish. But wouldn't you know, the way they spoke Spanish was affected by the way you put words together in these African languages. And because there were so very many Africans, that came to be the way everybody, regardless of status, spoke Spanish in Cuba. And so when Ricky Ricardo says, La mujer esta, he is actually saying something patterned, almost certainly, on the way slaves would have put that sentence. That's a little little something to think about. But this means that when languages come together, both of the languages end up being affected. And that is what's going on with this Miami dialect. So many people are speaking Spanish that the English is affected even as the Spanish starts to recede in some places. And so what's going on in the Miami dialect is just like what has gone on with English when it was affected by Norse first, and then when it was affected by Yiddish later among some communities. And it's just like what happened to Russian. It's just like what happened to Mandarin Chinese. And the truth is, certainly the sort of thing that our intrepid researchers have found in this Miami dialect would also be true in California and parts of the Southwest. What we're seeing in Professor Carter's research is really interesting, but in a way, he has revealed the glory of normalcy. Normalcy, that word was kind of made up by Warren G. Harding. That's probably the closest thing to useful that that man ever did. And yet there are people who think normalcy is not a word in any case, revealing the glory of normalcy. And what it means is that when you have a critical mass of speakers of one language learning another one, they leave their calling card in their version of the other one. And that calling card might be picked up by people who don't even speak 
that language that everybody else is speaking. This even has a name. If you are a real pointy-headed academic scholar of language contact, as for example, I am, you call this interference. It's interference, and this is not a judgmental word, but it's interference from Spanish in the English of many people who live in Miami. Quite normal. And so, for example, is there evidence of Arabic ways of putting words together in the Hebrew of Israeli Arabs? I assume that there is. I haven't studied it, but there would be no reason why there wouldn't be. Will there be among descendants of Somali immigrants to Minnesota certain Somaliisms and not just words in the way English is used. If the community stays relatively tightly knit, yes, there will be things like that. This is the sort of thing that you end up expecting. All of this is really about people speaking the same language, but differently. And yes, there is a show tune about this. It's called We Speak the Same Language. Can't help it. I've always wanted an excuse to play it. This is not a great song. Wasn't a good show. This is the guys who did Bye Bye Birdie. Of course, you know, they got them in to do another one right away. And for some reason, the next one was this strange slog of a show. The guy who had played the Scarecrow in The Wizard of Oz, he's a professor at a college and he falls in love. And that's that's one of the main plots. And then also, for some reason, the show had a lot of muscular, scantily clad male students kind of marching around singing songs. It didn't work. It was called All American. But there was a song called We Speak the Same Language, sung by Ron Hussman in his For the Era Magnificent voice. And so here's We Speak the Same Language. Don't worry, it's short, but I've got to slip this in at least once. I can't quite believe that we've just met. That we've spoken so few words and yet We speak the same language We feel the same way We speak the same language, but not quite. And that, folks, is normal homo sapiens. If you'd like to leave a comment or subscribe, please visit booksmartstudios.org. Our producer is, as always, the very patient Mike Volo. And by the way, go to booksmartstudios at gmail.com and leave us questions. That's another part of the bonus. You leave questions, and I'll answer two or three of them every couple weeks. Our theme music was created by Harvest Creative Services, and I am John McWhorter. 